the obstacle becomes the way. When uh, it, you know your faculties will rise to the occasions, and whatever insurmountable obstacles there are, if you put your mind to it, you will find a path through those hurdles. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my friend Sarish Samba, President and CEO of Samba Tech. Sarish is a first-generation immigrant from India with an amazing story I'm going to let him share with you today. Briefly, after coming to America to study engineering, Sarish left South Dakota State University with a master's degree in 1994 and joined an engineering firm in Minneapolis as an engineer in training. He eagerly volunteered for a broad range of assignments and quickly became respected for his technical skills, work ethic, and leadership. He subsequently engineered the repurchase of the firm from private equity investors and restored it to a company proudly owned and run by its working professionals. In addition to his many business accomplishments, Suresh is a grateful husband and proud father and spends lots of times time giving back to industry associations, civic organizations, and young professionals looking for a mentor. Having gotten to know him well myself, he's also just a great guy. So thank you so much for joining me today, Suresh. Thank you, Peyton. I think we are done. Uh, you did a fantastic <laughs> job with my introduction. That's, that's pretty much it, folks. Uh, I don't know if I can say any, any better than what Peyton already did. Uh, well, I'm going to give you the opportunity to retell your story to me and in the hopes of benefiting our listeners, because I think it is an amazing journey. And so, so I want you to just take us back to the earliest days of your entrepreneurial journey. Where did it begin? How did it begin? Help us understand where you've been. You know, Peyton, uh, as I was thinking about our podcast, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Gino Wickman, mm. two phenomenal guys in the EOS world that I uh, that I really respect. And it seems to me that both of you are speaking directly to me, the EOS life part of it, doing what you love with people that you love, uh, making an impact, compensated well for it, and pursuing passions. Mm. If you take those five golden nuggets, I am blessed to be able to do exactly just that. Hmm. I think if you, as you listen to my story, you will see all these five aspects uh, uh, being touched. Hmm. Not as much as I wanted to with the fifth one, which is pursuing the passions, which I'm trying to do at at 50 now, but you will see that those five things that Gino Wickman talks about in his new book, U.S. Life, speaks directly to you. So thank you for that good podcast there. Of course. Of course. So so take us back to the origin. You're a young boy in India. What, yeah, I grew uh, up uh, absolutely in the South India with a family of uh, six sisters. And I was the only uh, boy in our family. My father worked for the railroad company. Mom comes from a farming community. Back then, uh, they would not send uh, uh, girls to college. So we moved away from this small village to uh, this this city town on the banks of River Godavari, and uh, we were going out on a on a picnic one day and walking along the trails. And my mom and I, she and I were walking. She likes hiking, and so she has her uh, arm around my shoulder. We we're just walking along the trail, and 
Then I come across this statue of this man. It's a great man. His name is Sir Arthur Cotton, mm. a civil engineer from England who came to India in 1857. Who does that? You know, he was taking his horse along the jungles of this small town. During back then, in, in the 1800s, during monsoons, the towns were all wiped out because of flooding. And during uh, summers, there's drought. There's not a drop of water to drink. So here's a man who builds a dam across this mighty river. Mm. And he would hold the waters during drought seasons and provide uh, water to upstream villages. And during monsoons, the floodgates are lifted and, and the, rivers, uh, the river goes into Bay of Bengal. What a tremendous impact he had on the society. Mm. She didn't know he was a civil engineer. I didn't know he was a civil engineer, but he's a six feet tall guy on a, on a horse. I'm like, man, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> this, this seems fascinating. They built a statue for him. So later on in my life, I come, came to know that he's a civil engineer. I pursued my bachelor's in civil engineering. And as they say, you must seek opportunities wherever they are. Um, and so I pursued my master's in civil engineering in America. That's when I came to this country in 1992. Started my master's at Brooklyn, South Dakota, SDSU. Right after grad school, I joined my company, which at that time was called McCombs Frank Roos Associates, MFRA. A small company, very family-centric. Incredible, Suresh. Tell me more about the firm in the early days. What was it like? What were the people like that you worked for and with? I was the only person that looked any different than the rest of best of uh, 30 or so people at the time. But what an amazing company. I mean, Skip McCombs was the founder, a Navy War veteran uh, who started the company. A great guy, his wife, uh, Janelle McCombs, who I called him dearly mom and dad. They would take me in for Christmas Eve dinners and Thanksgiving dinners. Mm. And I thought, wow, what a, what a awesome company this is. So I'm going to work hard. So that's what I did. Mm. From 8 to 5, I would work in the municipal water, wastewater area. From 5 in the evening till later in the night, I would work in the land development, which is what we did at that time. So I got to know all aspects of what our company does. Greg Frank was then became CEO. In 2000, Greg Frank wanted to transition the company and, uh, and, and retire. Um, so he approached the shareholders at the time, you know, us civil engineers, we were all technical people and not businessmen. And I certainly wasn't at that time. I was a young engineer minding my business. Unfortunately, that uh, transaction got complicated. So he ended up selling it to a private investor for a $4 million valuation. The modus operandi of the private investor is, is different, obviously, than a civil engineer owner. So the culture of the company began to gradually uh, drift in a different direction. Nothing wrong, you know, business is business, I suppose. But those of us who had that mindset and nose to the grindstone continued to work hard and grind away uh, building various projects, designing and building. And then this gentleman who bought the company in 2000 resold the business this time to a private equity group. And people would say, you know, $8 million would be a good valuation doubling his investment. But he was able to package the company and sell it to a private equity group for a whopping $20 million valuation. Mm. Huge multiplier. And some of my clients would say, Suresh, you know, we heard your company was bought by a private equity group and it's a leveraged buyout. I was a civil engineer. I had no idea what leveraged buyout meant. 
So I, I went to a Carlson School of Management in 2006, got some understanding of balance sheets and income statements and cash flow, beginning to put uh, pieces together. Then came the Great Recession of 2007, 2008. So amazing timing, Suresh. You began taking on more business management responsibilities right at the start of the 2008 recession. How did the company fare? Everything came to a standstill. You remember mm-hmm. those days. It's yep. not the Great Recession for a reason. Walmarts and Sam's Clubs, we used to be the main consultant for Walmarts and Sam's Clubs throughout the Midwest. They were all shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, residential market is completely shut down thanks to the derivatives uh, influence. One day I came to work. There is not enough monies to make the payroll. Right about that time, uh, Jeff Roos, our company president, he was part of the original founders, McCombs, Frank Roos. Jeff Roos wanted to um, transition. You know, biggest expense is uh, employees. So they were laying off people, and, and it was a tough place to be. So Jeff Roos resigned, and the private equity didn't know who the next CEO was. So they had what's called a nominations within the company for the next CEO. Paul Pearson, with four decades of experience, all at the same company at MFRA, was the shoe-in candidate. He was going to be the, uh, everybody thought he's the guy for the CEO role, another gentleman. And I was the third guy nominated by my fellow colleagues and uh, shareholders. Is that one of those situations where you're not sure whether you're fortunate to be nominated or not fortunate, right? right? Yeah. Is this a blessing or a curse? Right, right. Yeah, so I went there, and I I am a passionate guy. I've seen capacity and the capabilities of the company, the culture we have with Skip McCullough, Greg Frank, Jeff Roos, all working hard, creatively adding tremendous value to clients and employees. I've seen the potential, So I and this is my first opportunity to meet with the private equity group. So I thought I'd tell them like it is as to you know, what made us successful. And unless we get back to the roots of what made us successful, it is going to be going towards a cliff. It is how I felt. Mm. And that's that was my interview, really. But in June of 2008, uh, I then became uh, the CEO and president of mm. our company, which at that time was called MFRA. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine yourself, Peyton, a, a young boy from the picnics wanting to be a civil engineer goes to college, joins this company, becomes a civil engineer, and uh, now thrusted to be in the role of a CEO. So as a brand new CEO in the middle of a recession, what was going on with you? What was your mindset? We cannot uh, succumb to the circumstances. We were almost on the verge of bankruptcy Mm -hmm. by the time I became the CEO. And as a matter of fact, it might be uh, a role for me to unwind the company. Mm-hmm. Here's a young guy who doesn't know much about business, put on this role to be CEO to unwind the company. Mm-hmm. It's how I felt, but I was not going to let this go towards bankruptcy. Lot, lots of sleepless nights, lots of prayers. And at that time, we still had about $12 million of debt. We were losing 150000 a month, no end in sight. The private equity has resigned, and they were looking to our for opportunities to exit. One of the exit strategies to shut it down. Then came this idea, this wild notion that what if I take on the debt, the private equity held by the banks, and give it a old college try. <laughs> and if we are successful, it'll be it'll be great. We all can keep our jobs. You know, I can find a job, but there are folks 
that have been with the same company for four, four decades, you know, mm-hmm. 50, 25 years. Some of them don't even know how to write a resume. And it, it isn't like in 2008, you're finding jobs anyway. So right. it is my obligation. It is my responsibilities. And, uh, and calling, I felt, to rebuild this company somehow. So imagine having that conversation with your wife. Uh, hey, Asafna, <laughs> you know, it's uh, $12 million in debt. You're losing 150000 By the way, there's no salaries this month. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to buy this company back from the banks. I did introduce you as a grateful husband for a reason, Suresh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and she has an MBA in finance. She's a uh, smart kid, big support to me as well. And she initially thought this, we have young daughters at that time. Mm-hmm. I have three kids now. At that time, we had two daughters. One idea is to move someplace warmer and, and find a job for ourselves or uh, take this mountain of a hurdle head on. And Peyton, I must quote Emperor Marcus Aurelius at this point. The obstacle becomes the way. Mm. When uh, it, you know your faculties will rise to the occasions and whatever insurmountable obstacles there are, if you put your mind to it, you will find a path through those hurdles. So in uh, 2008, I met the private equity group for a breakfast at Sunsets in Vizera and pitched this idea that what if I assume the debt that they held with the banks and give it to old college firm. Initially, they all laughed at the <laughs> at the notion. No, I mean, they even suggested, why not start my own small boutique shop with the few employees and few clients that, that we have. But there is something about the legacy of the company, and I, and I broke bread with uh, Skip McCombs, who started this company, and there was this fierce loyalty to go towards the company. So. That's what I was going to do. So yeah. we all went to the banks, of the walk, and I would take on the debt. So the vice president, uh, Chip Howard, Jeff Norton, they all looked at me and they said, Mr. Samba, you know, uh, show us your uh, financial statements, your, your net worth, sir, and with enough collateral, we might be able to uh, have you assume the debt. You know, Peyton, I was hearing the word net worth for the first time in my life. <laughs> What's net worth of a civil engineer with, uh, with a mortgage and two young daughters? Mm-hmm. And, and with a nervous laugh, that's what I said. I said, uh, my net worth is my firstborn child and my home equity line of credit. I thought I was joking, but the guy leans forward and he, and he said, uh, how much home equity line of credit are we talking yeah. As it, I mentioned that, and that wasn't enough. And, my 401k monies. So I put in a tremendous investment. They call it skin in the game. But to me, it's my entire savings, entire uh, livelihood to that point as cash infusion into the company. And, and you know, I was naive, but not uh, foolish. Instead of taking down the $12 million in debt, we did restructure the company and brought the debt down to a reasonable $5 million, which is still a tremendous debt. So after all the details of the transaction were settled, then what happened? This is where I think what Gino talked about, doing things with people you love, matters. So I came back to the office. It isn't about just me. It is important for me to have like-minded individuals with the same work ethic and passion for life and the impact we all are going to make on the company. Came back to the office stood in front of the 35 or so employees 
with fingers trembling and I kept them in my pocket so they don't see the nervousness mm-hmm. I have. We took on a huge undertaking with brute optimism. If you ask any financial uh, person, they would say this is foolish. Nobody should do something that I was doing. But with uh, brute optimism and fierce passion and what Marcus Aurelius talked about, if you put your mind to it, there is nothing you cannot clear your path through. As they say, you cannot be doing the same things and expect a different result. Uh, that's the definition of insanity. So from our core bread and butter, land development and municipal, we diversified into transportation and transit work. Someone said, you know, North Dakota was booming, so Paul and I drove his whole Cutlass Sierra uh, to uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, met with some folks there, made some collaborations and uh, partnerships, started uh, transportation. With that success, we transitioned to uh, MnDOT, Metro Transit. Southwest Light Rail was in the design at this at that time. It's in construction now. So um, we were fortunate to be one of the key consultants there. And also um, one of the signature products, the Viking Stadium. And who would have thought, here's the company that was almost should have been wiped out from this map, but I was able to take on this signature project called the Viking Stadium, the U.S. Bank Stadium. Not by ourselves, you know, we cannot do it all by yourself, ourselves. So we partnered, collaborated with similar companies. We created a coalition of small consultants that uh, took on these uh, Viking Stadium. Thanks to all these efforts, Peyton, by 2014, we became the 48th fastest growing company in the nation. Mm. According to Zweig uh, Group, we were the 48th hot firms. By 2016, we were able to pay off the entire debt. Mm. And that's when I took a breather and I thought, man, I think we finally made it. Until that time, it was just uh, this sheer hard work, determination, uh, optimism. So that's when we rebranded the company from MFRA, this mom and pop shop, to a enterprise called Samba Tech that does phenomenal work and adds tremendous values to our clients in the land development, residential and commercial markets, transportation, maybe highways, transit such as uh, metro transit. We opened an office in uh, Dallas, Texas. I do not want to ever go back to the 2009 uh, era. So how you do that is by diversification, both in geographies and markets. Mm -hmm. If you look at what made us who we are, it is core inherent to our core, the values are being entrepreneurial. Uh, Without that, we wouldn't have taken on this huge undertaking. Collaboration, we wouldn't have been successful all by ourselves. Collaboration with shareholders, collaboration through employees, collaboration through partners. And number three, this drive to exceed expectations. It's the drive to succeed when the odds are against you. So those are our core values. Even today, it's not a uh, vocabulary of pretty words on a piece of paper. It is true to who we are. Not just me, it's our partners and every employee. We hire employees with those core values and our vision is very simple. It is to enhance the lives of our employees, our clients, and the community that we live. Mm-hmm. And that was the initi- initiative for stepping up to this to the plate to take on MFRA, and that has been our vision. So, Peyton, my vision, therefore, is to grow this company to a 500 people, 75 million for the next 10 years. 
I think my guys think 10 years, but we can do it in five years. And we cannot do it with different operating systems, different models, different processes. So we adopted uh, EOS model in uh, 2014 timeframe. And we want to work with the best. So who's the best in the industry? <laughs> and, Peyton. And you, could, and so, you, couldn't, you couldn't find them, so you hired me instead. That's the, uh, that's the story, and I'm sticking with it. So, yes, Sarish, uh, how many employees today? We have a little over 100 employees Got it. in two offices, Minnetonka and Dallas, Texas. Got it. And coming out of the financial challenges you faced 12, 13 years ago, you feel financially healthy, growing, confident in your future, yes? Absolutely. We are a thriving enterprise. Yeah. The balance sheet has been best. Um, been great. We created what's called a long-term incentive plan for our employees to be part of the company. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not just the few of us, but many key employees who wants to be, I mean, taking the ownership is not easy. It's not for everybody. If you have that mindset and the uh, and those core values. Yeah. Yeah. An amazing, amazing story of facing obstacles head on and working your way through them with work ethic, creative problem solving, uh, optimism and resilience. And uh, so hopefully the listener is hearing that. I want to go back to the early days. You mentioned the role model that the statue of Sir Arthur Cotton uh, formed for you, but I want to talk about your leadership role models. Do you remember as a young boy anyone you viewed as a community leader or a family leader or a business leader that you try and emulate today because they had a profound impact on your leadership style? You know, I must say growing up, who I looked up to is my father and my mother. That's the best example. Here's a man. He he seemed like seven feet tall to me at that time. (laughs) I had seven of us, seven kids, work hard, strong principles, protect righteousness, and righteousness will protect you. That was the quotation we had on Mm. our main door. Mm. And that is how he carried his life. And to have a man that you can look up to and watch and emulate is a blessing. Mm-hmm. I think my, it is my father, that was my first role model. And my mother, who's a compassionate, kind, loving lady. I mean, if my father is this tough, commander-in-chief sort of a guy, didn't give a damn about anything and could take on anything in life, the opposite is my mother, who's a compassionate, kind soul, very forgiving, very willing to listen to anybody that and so she would share stories about her own father, who started a family farm with a small acreage and built an enterprise of family farm. So anecdotal stories like that. So I started with my parents. And then as I started knowing more about the world, uh, Alexander the Great comes to my mind. I read a book by Stephen Covey, uh, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I think throughout my life, even my first mentor, Mike Foreman, was the gentleman who hired me at uh, MFRA. He would take my uh, write-up, and all you see is red lines on my on a, on a piece of paper. <laughs> I couldn't see my original uh, uh, typing because everything is red. And some people would look at that and say, my gosh, you know, this guy has been too critical about my, my work. But I would learn from it and would say, okay, I must improve. So all, all along my life, there's not one person. Growing up, it's my parents. And, Early on, it was like, Alexander, how does a young 27-year-old man go from Greece to India, conquering Persia along the way? I mean, how does 
one do that? Yeah. I mean, here we are thinking about these small challenges in life, and, and there is no GPS at that time. There's none <laughs> of that. The guy finds himself uh, all the way to India and wanted to go to the other side of the world. So uh, I've, I've found and sought role models all along my life. Right. Had been a tremendous well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I more than one listener is is listening me talk to the visionary leader of an engineering firm and and trying to reconcile civil engineering technical capabilities with a visionary's mindset. Right. Those two things to many people don't seem to be aligned. And yet I think we sometimes forget that engineers are at the core creative problem solvers. Right. And so it goes back to Marcus Aurelius. If there's an obstacle, there's a way around the obstacle or through the obstacle. It's just our job to figure it all out. And I, you know, my understanding of your story is you've been doing that since you were barely up to your father's knees. So that's the fun part of this story for me. So let's talk about that a little bit. You shared in your story a lot of challenges, but I know there are others. What's the biggest problem you think you had to engineer your company's way through on this journey? When I became the CEO, I took that as a tremendous honor to be able to join the company, an immigrant joining the company as a young EIT with a thick mustache and a thicker accent. And then people didn't know who I was and what I could (laughs) bring to the table. And learning my way uh, along the way, uh, uh, emulating some of the highly successful people, uh, staff at our company. You know, we all Peyton have some great things and not so good things. Some might be an excellent engineer, a brilliant technical engineer, but if the emotional intelligence is not there, what the clients see is not just the engineering uh, ability, but how you present yourself and how you go about solving the problem or going about providing a value. So uh, early on in my life, I wanted to be an excellent engineer. Question: I am an excellent engineer in school. Uh, for that purpose. But I always felt it's also important to have a good personality to be able to understand the problem and solve the problem, but be able to explain the problem in a simple terms so the community and the client can see the value. Mm-hmm. I was a city engineer for a small town called Woodlake, Minnesota, southwest Minnesota, mm-hmm. Cottonwood, Clarkfield. Imagine you know driving down to these small towns going through these streets, passing by a small house, probably living by a door, and, and, and talking to the city council about a huge project. Of course, it's going to be a tremendous impact on this individual, the household. So understanding the totality of what you're doing, and not just the engineering solution, I think is very important. Mm-hmm. If there is a challenge that I have overcome, I'm not going to tell you it's the restructuring of the company or it's the uh, other things. It is my own evolution as a human being to be able to solve engineering problems and understand the totality of what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but not just the engineering solution. Yeah. I think to me, that I think is the, is the bigger challenge. Well, you know, it seems to me you were enthralled with the idea of becoming an engineer because of the, the impact you could have on people not because of the science of it, yes? Yes, the, the impact it has on the society was the 
drawing force. Yeah, You're so, absolutely right. Yeah, so do you view leadership the same way? Do you look at leadership as an opportunity to have a positive impact on the people around you versus achieving some objective or growing your business or so on and so forth? I'm just curious as to whether you, because they're both no, sciences. I, that's, that's a very uh, insightful, thoughtful question. I never thought of it that way, but as I'm thinking out loud, the biggest joy I get is not the title, not the power. It is my ability to influence the lives of employees, the clients, and the communities that we live in. Mm -hmm. And to see the, their enhanced the realization of that enhancement, you know, your own employees you know, building a nice house and having a child and send them to college, the impact I have, the impact we as a company have on them is probably the biggest motivator, mm. the biggest reward for me. Have you ever worked for or seen someone who wasn't a very good leader and said to yourself, I don't ever want to behave that way? And if so, give us the situation. You don't have to name names if you choose not to. But yeah, uh, yeah. what do you try not to do as a leader? You know, I, I view the world a little differently. I see, as I said, there are always some great traits that you want to emulate and not so great traits that you want to avoid. I mean, emotional intelligence is an important aspect. Uh, some engineers in general, uh, that's what I want to promote. If there is one thing that we don't, they don't teach you in, in, in college, at engineering schools, is that emotional intelligence uh, element. Uh, if we can take some uh, coursework in engineering uh, along those lines, I think that would be, uh, you will see you, you will see a much more uh, value realized by engineers. If, if you look at engineering industry in general, Peyton, we are underpaid and overworked. <laughs> <laughs> the the yeah. reason is because you are not articulating your value proposition mm. uh, like other professions do. Mm. And you would be able to do so by having evolution or development of those personality traits as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's one thing that is always stricken me as important about your thinking is you're constantly thinking about the positive impact your firm can have on not just the clients you serve, but the people that work for you and so on and so forth. And that's viewed as generous when you're talking about the impact you have, but it's also a very helpful selling tool as well because it's articulating your value proposition to the communities you serve and the clients you serve and the employees. And so it is a two-way street. That ability to holistically view that equation is really important. Have you ever felt stuck? You didn't know the right decision to make or the right answer to something and you just couldn't pull the trigger, couldn't make the decision as a leader. You always go through that journey. Uh, the initial question is, how am I going to do this? And so there are times where I would go to the, the, the temple or be at, uh, in, in my prayer room, just meditate and close my eyes and, and look for answers. And I've always come up with some good solutions at the end. And you surround yourselves with good men and women who think along those lines with those core values. When you And we do have that senior leadership uh, meetings that take place every Tuesday mornings, true to the EOS model. We have the senior leadership team that meets on Tuesday mornings, and we do what's called the IDS, identify, 
discuss, solve problems or issues. And it's uh, sometimes I might know the answer, but I would like to uh, present this issue and let it uh, be discussed and solved. And so EOS along those lines has been a great uh, help and having the right people, yeah. people that you love and trust to think about these problems for, for, uh, for all of us and come up with solutions that works for everybody uh, is how I go about it. Yeah. So summarizing, when you're stuck, don't feel like you're the only one who needs to figure it out. Consult God. You know, consult your family members, consult your fellow leadership team members. There are other people. What What's the quotation? None of us is as smart as all of us. Yeah. Well said. Um, let's talk about leadership outside of a business context for a minute, because I'm watching you transition into somebody who's wanting to spend more and more time pursuing other passions and leading and influencing people outside of your business. How have your leadership lessons learned in business impacted you as a husband, father, community member? Well, I think I've had the same engineering mindset to various problems that we encounter in the community. After I became CEO, one of the things that I've noticed is there's not many women and uh, minorities in the engineering space, simply because of access or various other things. And there's a consortium called American Council of Engineering Companies. It's an organization of all engineering companies. There's a board of directors, and and we all get together and talk about how difficult it is to find uh, women and minorities in engineering space. Gosh, you know, we can't find We can't find people. So how how are we going to uh, hire if we can't find people? Well, that's the problem. So you cannot look for solutions at the same place where the problem arises. So you have to look in that. A different ways, and, and as Gandhi said, each of us be the change that you want to see in the world. So, ten years ago, I think in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, is is uh, we started this program called Imagine the Possibilities. It's by a small Catholic missionary school in uh, uh, inner city Minneapolis, Powderhorn neighborhood, mm-hmm. Risen Christ Catholic Missionary School. We have come up with an idea where we, I would spend every month sometime with uh, inner city students, eighth grade students, about my own life, about the possibilities outside of their neighborhoods with respect to hopefully have them finish high school, pursue some STEM courses, and become an engineer in that process. So I would spend the time at uh, this Risen Christ Catholic Missionary School taking, uh, talking to eighth grade students, bringing them to my office for job shadowing. You know, these are, you know, minority students and girls who would look at Jennifer Barstow working here in the office, right? Uh, creating a, a beautiful design, Megan Larson, Michelle Caron, all these various folks at the, at the office. And they'd say, oh, gosh, Suisha, so how do, how do we work for your company? Well, that's a good question. You do that by A, finishing high school, number mm-hmm. one. Number two, pursuing STEM curriculum and, and engineering. You don't have to be a uh, engineering school that are diplomas, uh, technical schools as well that, that they could pursue. And that's what I have done. And uh, it is a tremendous reward to be able to see uh, and make that impact on these children and have them see pursue uh, engineering courses. So that's that, that I really take pride in something like that. 
uh, I, I eventually became the chairman of the board or president of American Council of Engineering Companies, be able to do so at a much larger scale, mm-hmm. and encouraging and uh, empowering other engineering companies to follow the same. If you look at our, our companies 10 years ago to where we are today, we have made a significant stride. Yes, there is more to be done. I think we all can make our companies much more uh, inclusive, vibrant, and uh, safe and supportive for women and minorities to thrive. We're here, here, here. And as I understand it, your daughter is off to university to study engineering, yes? Yeah, yeah. You know, what I noticed, Peyton, you don't have to tell your kids. Uh, they just watch you and see what you're doing. Yeah. And our conversations at the dinner table are also enlightening to me, even though, you know, they are young daughters, but they go to school, they become some some things and they'll talk about the new norm what is what is right what yeah. is not and, and i catch myself you know sometimes saying the wrong things so yeah. they correct me and well there's nothing more rewarding and sometimes more challenging as a leader than parenting your own children and it is a journey for sure so i'm i'm glad you're able to enjoy that one thing i notice about you that i think bears mention is the deep personal connection you have with people in your life that are important to you. You're very careful to use their names and talk about their families and their history, and this seems to come naturally to you. Talk about the importance of truly knowing the people you're leading and and why it is you work so hard to do that well. Wow, that's a very good question. Again, I never thought of it that way. It just came natural to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I have to ask myself the question, why are they so, why are they that way with me? Mm. You know, when Mike Foreman interviewed me to be an EIT, he interviewed 12 other candidates. He, he later told me that. He, he wrote a memo to his boss about why he should hire me. And, and a few weeks later, the gentleman takes me to his house and introduces me to his wife. And we all go to a symphony orchestra in, in an orchestra hall listening to Beethoven, Emperor uh, Concept Number no. 5. Mm. Just mind-blowing. Like, my gosh, what is this? What world I am, am I in? Why is it that Mike Foreman takes that kind of personal interest to take a young man um, with a thick mustache and a thicker accent, A, to you know, correct me in some pronunciation about things, he, he still does, and to expose me to that culture and say, why is it that he did that? Why is it that Janelle McCombs, Skip McCombs' wife, knew that I was a single by myself for Thanksgiving, so she invites me to her house, and I was sitting there with Doug McCombs and Regina and, and Tina, and their family, their children, with their grandchildren, and I was at the table having a Thanksgiving meal. First time in my life, Peyton, mm-hmm. I mean, having this sort of a feast with you know, turkey and cranberry sauce and corn, bread and butter, uh, how to hold the uh, fork and knife. Why is it that that they show that kind of interest? I don't know. Because they're doing the same, I myself find myself doing the same. So I don't know. It, it, it comes natural to me. And I'm, I'm amazed at human values of being able to do that to some total stranger sometimes. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that subject. And therefore, I try to do the same and yeah. pass on. I'm simply passing that those kind of human values, redeeming values. Hmm. Really good stuff. All right, I'm going to close with one last question. Imagine 
the young leader out there who maybe hasn't gotten his or her first leadership assignment and is is wanting to be great at this stuff if you could give them one piece of advice to help them along on their leadership journey what is it have the vision for yourself have the vision for your future but mind the business at hand today is important what you're working on is important do the best that you possibly can with the business at hand the task at hand today with vision for the future. Mm. Brilliant stuff, Sarish. Thank you so much for the time today. It's been great talking with you and hearing your story. Where can our listener go to find out more about you or Samba Tech if they're interested in learning more? SambaTech.com, www.sambatech.com, S-A-M-B-A-T-E-K.com. That has all our contact information. Call me anytime or email. I'll make sure to get that in the show notes. Once again, this has been Mike Payton with Sarish Samba of Samba Tech. The EOS Leader Podcast is all about helping us realize how we can be the best leader we can every day. And you've done a great job helping our listener get there, Sarish. Thank you again. Thank you, Payton. I think you made me uh, introspect and, and, and talk about some things that I have never talked about. Uh, so good to uh, hear. You have that unique ability. So thank you. Kudos to you. Good to hear. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks, Suresh. Thank you much. If you're interested in applying what you've learned today in your own business, the five books in the Traction Library can be helpful resources on your journey. You can learn more about those five books and actually order them at a deep discount by visiting eosworldwide.com.